The scripture reading for this morning is taken from the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John chapter 11, and we'll be reading the verses 1 to 44. You'll be able to find John 11 on page 1236 of your pew Bible. Now in the passage leading up to our chapter, John 11, Jesus was at the temple at the time of the feast of dedication and he was preaching and people had taken offense at what he said and picked up stones to stone him and so he withdrew after that beyond the Jordan to the other side of the Jordan and stayed and preached there for a while. Now we come to chapter 11 and we read now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you, and you are going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. And these things he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. Then his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get well. However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought that he was speaking about taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. When Thomas, who is called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, then Thomas, who is called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away, and many of the Jews had joined the woman around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him, but Mary was sitting in the house. Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, 
the Son of God who is to come into the world. And when she had said these things, she went her way and secretly called Mary, her sister, saying, The teacher has come and is calling for you. As soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came to him. Now Jesus was not yet come into the town, but was in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and comforting her, when they saw that Mary rose up quickly and went out, followed her, saying, She is going to the tomb to weep there. Then when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Therefore, when, the, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, See how he loved him. And some of them said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus again, groaning in himself, came to the tomb. There was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I know that you always hear me. But because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Now when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. So far the word of God. We're looking at this passage through the lens of verses 25 and 26 in particular. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you were facing almost certain death in going somewhere, would you go there? Would you face people who are trying to kill you? Our Lord Jesus Christ finds himself in this situation. He has just withdrawn from the region of Jerusalem because people were trying to kill him. They hated who he was and what he represented so much that they wanted to pick up stones and throw stones at him until he was dead. They loathed him so much that they wanted to kill him. Imagine that kind of hate. What could cause people to be so angry with Jesus? We see in the book of John up to this point that tensions have been rising between Jesus and those who are in opposition to him. Every time Jesus reveals a little more of who he is, he performs miracles, 
Signs showing his power over different points of the physical and the spiritual world. And every time he shows a little more of who he is, there is a response of unbelief and a response of belief. For his disciples, the signs and sermons are strengthening their faith in him, preparing them for what he knows is coming. For the unbelieving Jews, especially those in the region of Jerusalem, on the other hand, the signs and the sermons make them hate him all the more. They understand the claims he is making. In John 10 verse 33, we read the Jews saying, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. The greater and greater claims that he is making drive them further and further away. Now in our passage today, knowing that his dear friend Lazarus is dead, Jesus wants to risk going into this region once again. With danger hanging over him like a cloud, he and his disciples head back to Bethany. It is in this setting one of conflicting belief and unbelief and life-threatening danger that Jesus makes one of his greatest statements yet. To those who will fall asleep, our Lord Jesus Christ says, I am the resurrection and the life. Though you die, yet shall you live. Our passage begins with Lazarus of Bethany being ill. The Christian church in the author, the Apostle John's day, may not have known Lazarus very well. But they did know the story of the woman who had washed Jesus' feet. And so John goes on to clarify that he's the brother of Mary and Martha, who may have been better known to the members of the early church. We don't exactly know how Lazarus knew Jesus, but he was a very dear friend to Jesus. That being said, Mary and Martha would not have sent word to Jesus lightly. They knew the danger that he was in. The village of Bethany is described as being two miles from Jerusalem. So it is very dangerous territory for Jesus. Lazarus just being a little bit sick wouldn't have been enough to persuade Mary and Martha to ask Jesus to risk his life to make him better. It seems like Lazarus was sick to the point of death, and so they were getting desperate. You kids in the congregation, some of you are extra nice to your siblings when they're sick. What if they were so sick that they might die? Wouldn't you do anything you possibly could to try help your brother or sister? But though they sent for Jesus, Jesus does not come. At first glance, it would make a kind of sense that he doesn't come. It's a very dangerous place to be. His disciples don't question his decision at all. But that's not the reason why, is it? Why then didn't he come? Doesn't he love them? This illness does not lead to death, he says to the messenger. Jesus is promising something here, and those around him believe him. 
He has a further reason for staying behind. He says, it's for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. There is something much bigger in the works. Jesus isn't a miracle worker for his own benefit. He's working on God's timeline, not his own. Maybe slightly encouraged, the messengers go back to Mary and Martha to give comfort and to prepare those who are hearing this story. We read in verse 5 that Jesus really did love Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. There was no question about that and no deception in his words. But he wasn't going to heal them just because he wanted to spare them from pain. Rather, it was out of love and obedience to the will of his Father that he waited. Then the author of the Gospel of John goes on to explain what it meant to work on God's timeline. He begins in a roundabout way. First, Jesus stays two more days in the land beyond the Jordan where he has been working. And finally, after all this, he says to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. For his disciples, this suggestion would have been completely out of the blue. Rabbi, they say, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going back there again? He only just escaped being killed the last time around, and he wants to go back into the lion's den again? What could possibly compel him to do that? In response to this, Jesus uses a miniature parable. We read in verse 9 that he says, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. He's not using this as an answer for why he's going back. But he's using this to encourage his disciples. While his disciples are with him, they don't really need to fear anything. But more than that, with with these words, he's preparing their hearts for what's coming. A time will come when they don't have Jesus with them, just as Lazarus did not have Jesus with him now. But the reminder of him as the light during this time will bring them courage, because they will at that time no more fear death. But the disciples don't get it yet. And so, what Jesus follows up with sounds completely strange to them. Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him, Jesus says. And a flurry of questions follow. How does Jesus know that Lazarus is sleeping? Why would he wake him up? Doesn't sleep mean that he'll get better? It could be possible that the disciples could have come to the understanding that Jesus was talking about death themselves, as the Psalms do talk about the righteous sleeping in the sleep of death. Psalm 13, verse 3. But since Jesus speaks of waking Lazarus up and doesn't really give them the context, they thought that he meant the sleep of sleep, or taking rest in sleep, as it's translated here. No, Jesus clarifies, Lazarus has died. 
He himself is not happy about the death as he would not willingly inflict this level of sorrow on those he loves. We can see that it brings him to tears later. But for their sake, he is happy. In response to this, still not understanding, Thomas echoes what everyone else is thinking. Let us also go that we may die with him. To the disciples, the scene seems grim, dark, and hopeless. Lazarus is dead. Jesus seems to have failed in his prediction. And now it feels like Jesus is not just himself going to his death, but leading the entire company of disciples to disaster. But through it all comes a glimmer of hope. As Jesus arrives, still distancing himself from the crowd, Martha comes before him and says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. She is tossing out the question, what could you possibly have been intending with all of this, Jesus? Now, to understand where Jesus is coming from, we should first understand that he's operating on a much different level than the disciples. And all of this cycles around the words sleep and death. What exactly does he mean by these words? Why would he say that the sickness of Lazarus would not end in death if he knew that Lazarus would die? The key to answering this is found in the words of Jesus in verse 11, as well as the first verse of our text. First, in verse 11, Jesus says, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. With these words, Jesus is teaching his disciples that death is not the end. Sometimes we have it in our lives that we see, we do see death as the end of the road. While we know the truth in our heads, our hearts don't always allow us to follow that. Our hearts don't always allow us to see death as any more than that. But what Jesus is telling us here is that there is confidence that we can have even in the face of death. Because he, our Redeemer, has power over death. In the face of death, we don't stumble in hopelessness and darkness. Death is not the end of the road. It's the beginning. Kids, do you know where your parents are from? How about their parents? How about their, their great-grandparents? Many of us are descended of immigrants. While forefathers who came over may have had a decent amount of contact with their families back home, there was a time when immigrating to Canada seemed like the end of the road. There would be many tears shed. The ocean was a vast divide, deep and cold. And for most people, it was a one-way trip. Everything on the one side was given up for the sake of life on the other, leaving nothing to return to. They themselves had joyful expectation of a new beginning on the other side, but their own family and friends still wept. They wept because they understood that they would not be seeing or hearing from those who were immigrating again. 
But when they waved goodbye, they understood that this was not the end of the road. They knew that their loved ones would go on living, facing the prospect of building a new life on the other side of the ocean. And they knew that one day they would meet again, waking up from this world as if from sleep, as if from a dream in heaven. Yes, sleep implies waking. And the language that Jesus uses to promise that Lazarus will be raised in verse 11 is the very same language that Jesus uses for all believers in verse 25. Jesus says to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Christ is giving a promise that each of us can put our trust in. And not just something that we can know intellectually, but something we can bring our hearts to. And like Martha, we're called to put our complete trust in him and in his promises, crying out, yes, Lord, I believe that you are Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. Then like those who stayed behind and waved farewell to their friends and family members on the boat, we can say farewell to our believing loved ones when they pass on. But while we may say it with tears, we do not say it with hopelessness. Our farewell is not a goodbye forever. Rather, by the promise of our Lord and Savior, we can be assured that it is an until we meet again. In the meantime, we will weep. We will grieve. And that's okay. Death is unnatural. A byproduct of a world that's filled with sin, evil, darkness, and pain. But it has no hold over us. In Christ, death has no more power. So we do not grieve as those who have no hope. For as we read in 1 Thessalonians, since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. And this leads us into our second point. Though you die, yet shall you live. After Martha makes her remarkable profession of faith, she heads back to Mary. Quietly, she takes her sister aside, away from the mourners, and tells her that the Lord has arrived. She slipped out earlier, and now she's telling Mary quietly because she knew the danger that Jesus was in from the crowds. She was familiar with the fact that he had withdrawn from a dangerous situation earlier, and she wants to keep it a little bit quiet. Mary, however, is overcome with emotion, and she rushes out full tilt. The Jews who had come to console her see her leaving in such a hurry and they follow her. They think that she has been so overcome with sorrow that she has to go to the tomb to weep there. But instead it's her Lord that she goes to. There is no slipping out like Martha. All thought for the safety of her Lord has been pushed out of her mind by grief. She simply wants to hear from him. She needs a reason, an explanation. Mary casts herself at his feet, weeping. Lord, she cries out in sorrow. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. The question, why, is first and foremost in her mind. Why didn't you come? Why didn't you save my brother? 
Some commentators have remarked on her unbelief here, the fact that she does not make any confession like Martha's. But that goes too far. What we have here is a broken woman. She's just lost her brother, someone whom she deeply loved and who she was very close to. The Bible does not condemn her for being overwhelmed in the moment, and so neither should we. Deeply moved by her sorrow, Jesus asked, Where have you laid him? Hurriedly, the crowd moves to lead him to the tomb. And as they moved, seeing the mourners and the sorrow of his dear friends, Mary and Martha, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. Why would he weep? Did he not remember that he had the power to raise Lazarus from the dead and reverse this situation? Why didn't he just say, why are you crying? Lazarus, come out. Jesus wept because of his sorrow at the brokenness of this sinful world. He wept because of the deep effects of death, the result of sin on those who were closest to him. He wept because of the persistent unbelief of those who were around him. And he wept because of the tragedy of the human situation from which not even the people of God can extract themselves. The crowd is skeptical in the face of this grieving rabbi. They aren't prepared to stone Jesus yet. And many of them even have sympathy for him believing him to be grieving the death of Lazarus. But even in the light of that, many still whisper. You can almost hear the condemnation in their voices as they echo the sentiments of Mary and Martha. Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Finally, the party arrives at the tomb. Now Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days. Four days is highlighted because according to Jewish tradition of the day, the spirit hovered around the body for three days, hoping to be reunited with it. And according to that superstition, it was only after four days that the spirit moved on. Even the most superstitious Jew would be absolutely sure that Lazarus was dead. The certainty of his death is highlighted even more in the words of Martha when she protests, Lord, by this time there will be an odor. By this time there will be a smell. Jesus gently rebukes her, reminding her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? By saying this, Jesus is drawing attention to the message that he had sent to the sisters at the beginning of the passage. There he said that the illness of Lazarus was for the glory of God, so that the Son of Man may be glorified through it. That was part of the message that he sent back. Tying that into his claim that he is the resurrection and the life, this gentle rebuke becomes so much more than the simple words he utters in that moment. It's a claim to divinity. Martha has expressed her belief in him as the Christ, the Son of God. And now he, the Son of God, will be glorified. Now he, by divine power, will act and show the glory of God. 
After this bold statement, Jesus gives even more power to his claim by calling upon God as his Father. After they take away the stone, he lifts up his eyes to heaven and addresses God in a prayer of thanksgiving, not request. By doing so, Jesus is underlining his sovereignty over the situation. He does indeed have the power of life and death and exercises it here. He doesn't state this privately, but he cries it out for the world to hear so that the crowd standing by might reach the point of recognition that he is who he claims he is. Again, this dividing line. Jesus is bringing them to this dividing line of belief and unbelief. In doing so, Jesus has shown his great love for Mary, Martha, Lazarus, and his disciples. By making this claim, he is giving them something firm to hold to. He's strengthening their faith. Not just for the moment, but for what lies ahead. By this sign, this seventh sign in this gospel, this most incredible of all of the signs that have been leading up to it, Jesus is preparing those he loves for what is to come. His suffering and his death. And after his resurrection, they will be bolstered in their faith to face the terrible dangers of what is to come. They will be emboldened to spread the good news of the gospel, strengthened by the fact that Jesus is Lord even over life and death. But his disciples don't know all of that yet. They simply hear the call, Lazarus, come out. And they wait in breathless anticipation. Without fanfare, the author of the Gospel of John simply and quietly states, the man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped in a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Nothing, no fireworks, no drama, just a simple command. And Jesus demonstrates that he is the Lord of the dead and the living. In the beginning, God created by the words of his mouth. God created life by the word of his mouth. And now Jesus demonstrates that even death must bow the knee to Jesus, God Almighty. We read in our text the words, I am the resurrection and the life. We've seen this backed up in the actions of Jesus in one person, in Lazarus. So what about the rest of us? Lazarus has come and gone. He has returned to the grave long ago. Likewise, Mary, Martha, and all of the other disciples have returned to the grave. They've returned to dust. So what power does this declaration and action have for those who remain alive today? Well, in this, we're faced with the words that Jesus speaks in our text for today. Whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And indeed, we're left with the question, do you believe this? Do you? 
It's true that Lazarus has come and gone. Is that all we have to put our hope in? If that was all we had to hope for, all the hopelessness of our situation, we would be the most pitied of all men. But that is not all that we have to hope for. Why not? Christ himself has risen from the dead. Christ himself has risen from the dead. As our conquering king, he shattered the power of death so that not even the grave could maintain its hold over him. Death, in trying to swallow up Christ, has itself been swallowed up in the victory of Christ. As we read in the first letter to the Corinthians, the 15th chapter, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Christ's resurrection is the first fruits, the sure promise of our glorious resurrection. What a great contrast we have. What a great contrast such a hope is to that of a hopeless world. The poet Dylan Thomas was very reflective of our times when he wrote, Do not go gentle into that good night. Rage. Rage against the dying of the light. What darkness, horror, and despair that those who have no hope display in the face of this bottomless chasm. Death to them is no mere sleep. It is truly a terrible darkness that they face. Death is an eternity for them, both in this world and the next. Far from the glorious and beautiful light of the presence of God. Those who believe, on the other hand, do not need to rage against the dying of the light. We have the sacred promise of Jesus Christ himself that burns as an eternal flame. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? What magnificent bliss this is. Thanks to our dear Lord, our conquering Savior, the gates of heaven have been thrown wide open for us. We face an eternity in the arms of a gracious and loving Father, not one who falls short as so many of our earthly fathers do, but one who is the infinitely wise, good, and faithful one, one who will cleanse us from the sorrows of this world and who will usher us into paradise. And once we fall asleep, we will awaken in the presence of our Lord. There will be no more separation between us and God any longer, no more tears or mourning or crying or pain, but an eternity of joy with our Lord. And there we can await the final day. That final day when we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. 
And when the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. 1 Corinthians 15. The strife is over. The battle done. The victory of life is won. The song of triumph has begun. Alleluia. Amen.